We're recording inside the Cohab Podcast Studio space under the Texas Street Bridge by the Red River in downtown Shreveport, Louisiana, and this is the 3180 Podcast. What is going on in the 318? What is our current identity? Shreveporters can make this place into the city we want it to be. It's time for Shreveport to make a 180. Every Thursday, we are having conversations about doing just that. We're talking to people who are making the difference in our city. I'm Josh Clayton. I'm Thomas Young. Welcome to the 3180 Podcast. Candace Batiste is the Power Coalition's North Louisiana organizer, where she is committed to building voices and power in traditionally disenfranchised communities and bringing together groups across the North with a mission to organize in impacted communities, educate and turn out votes, and fight for policies that create a more equitable and just system in Louisiana. She graduated from Houghton High School, where she was elected the first black woman student body president in their 100-year history. She's an alum of Louisiana State University and earned her law degree from Southern University Law Center. There, she served as president of law students for reproductive justice and was a recipient of the prestigious Marshall Brennan Constitutional Literacy Fellowship. Upon graduation, Candace helped form the Family Law Unit of Legal Services of North Louisiana. She was the past Louisiana State Director of Project ID, former shreveport Bossier Field Organizer with the Unanimous Jury Coalition, Yes on Two campaign. She worked for Mayor Adrian Perkins' campaign as his political relations and social media strategist, serves on the Citizen She Board of Directors, was recently elected to the ACLU of Louisiana Board of Directors, past Vice President of the Women's Democratic Club of Northwest Louisiana, serves on the Executive Board of the New Leaders Council and the Selections Co-Chair, is on the Downtown Development Authority for Shreveport, and was selected as a United Nations Association delegate. When Candace is not discussing progressive politics and working to affect positive change, she is with family and friends or can be found traveling to one of Louisiana's many food and music festivals. On a personal note, Miss Batiste introduced me to Orlando. She introduced Thomas as well. And if she doesn't take that bar exam, by December her parents are going to kick her out the house from what we understand. So welcome Candace Batiste. Please enjoy episode 12 of the 3180 podcast. I'll repeat it too if I need to. All right, we're recording now. Can you say some more bad stuff about Demetri? Sure, Demetrius talks quite a bit, but okay. he always has something great to say. Okay. So. No, I, I was okay. going to help you out with that yeah. by saying, Thank but you. everything he says is fantastic. <laughs> it so is, it's, it's great it is. to hear everything he has to say. So, Candice Batiste, mm-hmm. welcome to the 3180 podcast. Yay, I'm happy to be here. We're happy that you're here. Uh, your name has come up multiple times in my, my, my famous question who's my next guest? So, I've, really? I've heard a couple of people tell me that, that you need to be on here. So, so. Uh, why do you need to be on this podcast? I think it may just be because I take a different approach to talking about civic engagement and the democratic process, especially when it comes to voting. I'm okay with, you know, including some entertainment in there and talking about it in a way that is um, digestible mm-hmm. and fun because I don't want to do anything that doesn't have a certain level of enjoyment. And so I think maybe that crosses over to quite a few different audiences and I'm always willing to learn even though I'm doing a whole lot of teaching as well and so I'm constantly learning things Um, I always knew that I wanted to be in politics in some type of way I didn't necessarily know that it would end up looking like this and that I would end up being an organizer Um, but I'm an organizer with a law degree and so it's really interesting being in this space where there are a lot of grassroots um, type of movements going on and then I kind of come in as a grass topper and the example that I can give you that sort of explains what that is instead of me having to stand out of stand outside of um, 
water and sewage with um, trying to get like employees from water and sewage and giving them pamphlets saying these are your rights about whatever. I can call the mayor and say, hey, I need to meet with all the employees who are with water and sewer because I have information. Okay. Um, that is sort of the difference. It's just more so of what your network looks like versus we got to we got to go straight to the people. I, I believe that that is important, too. But in the name of efficiency, sometimes you can get a gathering of people together if you know the right people to call. Yeah, well, through your education and through your experience, mm-hmm. you realize that sometimes it, things can be a lot more effectively accomplished by right. calling the top. Absolutely. So tell us, uh, Candace, how did you get to Shreveport? Where are you from originally? Tell us about your uh, tell us about your background. I am originally from Houghton, Louisiana. I okay. thought I would be the first one to put it on the map, but Dak Prescott did it before I could. Who's Dak Prescott? He is the quarterback for the oh, Dallas I'm, Cowboys. I'm just I'm just giving you a hard yeah. time. I'm yeah. not familiar with <laughs> that was, person. So or that team, for that yeah, matter. We only know. recognize the Saints here. Well, yeah, especially after that Monday night performance. Um, that, yeah. yeah. So, to, all right. So, uh, you didn't put Houghton on the map, but um, I did not. I'm, I'm still trying. Well, tell us a little bit more. You got yeah. went it to Houghton High School. Or? I did. I went to Houghton High School. Um, got my start in politics at Houghton Schools when I ran for class president in the eighth grade. Uh, okay. I don't really remember my like, platform. Like Houghton Middle School? Yeah. And did you win? I did. Okay. I did. Right. I won my first campaign um, okay. at 14 and then went on to be um, class president my senior year of high school. And I was the first black woman in Houghton's 100-year history to mm-hmm. be able to say that I was um, class president. Okay. And decided very early on that I, I knew I was going to be in politics because I remember watching a certain episode of Arsenio Hall where I see this guy, this white guy from Arkansas, and I'm like, oh, that's only a couple hours away. And he starts playing the saxophone. And I'm blown away because this is cool. Everything that I know about jazz, I'm a Baptiste, um, didn't really see people who looked like him. Mm-hmm. And my dad, um, he plays the piano. I've always been exposed to musicians who were just really good. And I was just completely enamored with someone only being a couple of hours away, running for president, played the saxophone. And I remember asking my mom, um, so what does he do? I know he's running for president, but what does he do? And she was like, oh, offhand, um, I think he's a lawyer. And so I grew up thinking that in order for you to be a politician or to be in politics, then you had to be a lawyer. Right. Because I was a kid, you know, at the time. Um, Also, that's true. Right. (laughs) But I mean, there are people who are doing great work in politics who um, don't have that that legal background. But for the most part, we are overwhelmingly... um, we are overwhelmingly see many lawyers that are, I mean, that's just historic. And so went to, um, knew I wanted to go to school in Baton Rouge. How'd you end up coming up in Houghton? Are you, are you, is your family from there? My mom is from Houghton. Okay. Yes. And Where's so your daddy from? My daddy is from, my family is originally from New Orleans, yeah. since Betsy's, but my dad grew up in Vallejo, California. Okay. And so... I sort of have a little bit of my mom being a Southern Belle, very proper, and mm-hmm. my dad is super laissez-faire, like yeah. anything goes. Mm-hmm. Um, but he ended up back here because he's in the Air Force, and so last tour duty was um, him ending up at Barksdale. He used the GI Bill to go back to school. Him and my mom met standing in line at Centenary. And while when you had to stand in line to register for class, oh, yeah. and um, went to have lunch at George's Diner. And four years later, 
here I am. Uh, okay. Um, they got married like within nine months of meeting each other. And I asked them, I was like, you know, what took you all so long to decide to have fabulous me? <laughs> and they were just like, we knew whatever child we had was going to be a handful. <laughs> and so we wanted time to be married and enjoy each other. And okay. sure enough, I think I'm, I'm a handful, but I hope I'm, I'm making them proud. And so that's how, um, that's how my family ended up here. And decided to go to Baton Rouge because I wanted to be closer to the legislature. Mm -hmm. And so I knew that I was going to go to a school in Baton Rouge, but it wasn't until I did Girls State my junior year, um, and we went to LSU for that mm -hmm. summer, that I fell in love with the campus and it helped that we were coming off of a winning year, championship year, so 04 um, was when I entered, and it was the best decision that I ever made. Good deal. So, yeah. Did you? Where'd you go to law school? The Southern University Law Center. Okay, wow. Yeah. So you did your undergrad at LSU. Mm -hmm. then, then I went across the river. Well, because you, really you wanted to learn how to practice law. Yeah. Well, yeah, eh, I, no. eh, it was more so of I wanted to learn public policy. I wanted to learn how to yeah. make the laws. I wanted to know what the process was for doing that, and interestingly enough, wanting to know how to do good research because. Even at that time, I knew that there was a disconnect with what people thought versus what was the actual truth. Yeah. And so that cognitive dissonance is something that you can train yourself not to um, not to fall into by being a good researcher, knowing good research methods. And so after graduation, um, when I came back up here, I ended up getting into politics pretty quickly. And it was because I had a friend reach out who had graduated from the law school a couple of years ahead of me and said, we have a friend that's coming back home, just getting ready to graduate from Harvard. Um, he went to Captain Shreve. He wants to run for mayor. And will you sit down and talk to him? Mm -hmm. Didn't really know much about him at all. Um, after about a two hour conversation, mm -hmm. I knew a lot more and I knew that our our values aligned in how he loved the city and the way that I love the city and the potential that we both saw. Um, I decided to work on his campaign and handled the PR and the social media and it worked because now he's the mayor of Shreveport. So that's right. Adrian so, Perkins was my uh, my first career win, and I had a, an issues campaign that I worked on um, that same year with Yes on Two and unanimous juries. Mm -hmm. And so, for those that don't know what that's about, us in Oregon were the only two states in the nation who did not require all 12 people on a jury to agree on your guilt or innocence. And we saw that that was an issue for multiple reasons. Mm -hmm. One, um, we already knew that we had the highest incarceration rates in the world, on the planet. Mm -hmm. I want people to understand how ridiculous that is considering our population size, having more people incarcerated per capita than anywhere else in the world. Um, now we're number two. Oklahoma overtook us because of some of those criminal justice reform initiatives like unanimous juries. And so going back to that, um, that was called yes, vote yes on two. 
Um, it was the second amendment provision on the ballot. And so we said vote yes on two that we do need to have everyone's voice on a jury count. 12 people are sitting on a jury. All 12 voices should be considered, not just 10 out of 12, which is what we were working with before. And we also saw that that led to many false convictions as well, because you might have one or two people who say, hold up, something's not really meshing with, um, with what you're telling us, something not something isn't right here. But those two voices don't count. That one voice doesn't count. And now, if you cannot convince all 12 people on the jury of someone's guilt or innocence, then, um, then of course, it's not going to fly. And so we were really happy about being able to get that passed. Now we've caught up with the rest of the nation and Oregon has reached out wanting to know about that campaign and how were we able to make it such a resounding success. And one thing that I'm super proud of with Caddo Parish is the statewide um, the statewide average or the statewide percentage of people who voted in favor of it was 63% and 64%, and then Caddo Parish voted in favor, 73%. And so I think we did a pretty good job of informing people, educating people about that issue. And it's something that I am super proud of. I had a great team of canvassers who committed themselves to, to learning about unanimous juries. And some of those people who had actually been convicted by a non-unanimous jury were part of that canvassing team and so it was personal for them and getting volunteers who had been personally affected because they were jurors themselves and had found out their vote did not count was also another layer and so we were really proud and it was a true community citywide effort to get that passed yeah y'all did a really good job in marketing on that as well and Thank as somebody you. who's tried criminal cases to juries before mm-hmm. and um seen clients get convicted and seen clients get exonerated right. through the jury process. I appreciated the the unanimous jury. I appreciated all the efforts that that campaign pushed forth to get the unanimous jury vote for, for convictions of, of 12 jurors. And yeah. we had, a, you know, that you need a, a unanimous for six. Right. But you only needed 10 to convict on a um, on a 12 person jury, which was Kind of sketchy. Yes, very much very, so. Very sketchy. So what you go back to undergrad uh, at LSU? What'd you get a degree in? English literature. English lit. Yes. What's your, tell me, tell me your favorite. Let's Amer- American oh, lit. What's your favorite American oh, lit? American lit. Oh man, I'm being put on the spot. Um, what book I'm have you reread? To... What book did you love so much that you reread it? Does Raising in the Sun count? Yeah, it counts. Okay, we'll go with that. Okay. I love it. Um, and I'd have to say Canterbury Tales would be um, British literature okay. that I You're enjoy. A, you like the Brit lit? Only because I ended up doing an actual pilgrimage in Europe mm-hmm. um, that followed the same. The Canterbury Tales? Yes. Oh, wow. And so, Maybe course, I would like the Canterbury Tales if I did that right. as well. Right. It, it was great. Yeah. And the, the little town of Canterbury is actually yeah. pretty cool. It's all cobblestone, very yeah. quaint. Um, but yeah, so those, those would be my two. Yeah. Well, good deal. All right, so so you get an English lit degree, mm-hmm. and I, I mentioned earlier you wanted to learn how to practice law because everyone says that if you want to be a professor, you go to LSU, and then if you want to be uh, if you want to be a trial lawyer, you go to Southern. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the the practical education that you get at Southern Law School, I don't know if it's still the case because I got out of law school in '06, but I do know that. I do know that they did not teach us where the courthouse was. Oh my! In L- at LSU, they did not teach us how to draft a pleading at LSU. Like you, we did. 
we learned the most esoteric philosophical branch of law and then it, you they used to say oh, they teach you how to pass the bar there mm-hmm. they didn't even do that they just it was it, it, we didn't learn anything about practicing law there i mean i learned the law to some degree in theory right yeah. right but no there was no i mean i would say that a handful of my professors weren't even barred in the state of louisiana they were you know they they were you know what i mean like yeah. they they were uh, they were from elsewhere. Maybe they tried cases elsewhere or something, mm-hmm. but very few of our lawyers or very few of our professors were real practitioners of the law. And I, and I saw that, I don't know about Loyola and Tulane, but um, I know that Southern had a pretty strong contingent of real practitioners as right. professors. And, and that's true. Um, it also helped that they encouraged us to get involved with the community. Um, our 2L year, for those that don't know, 1L years. I don't know, basically like freshman year, 2L year, sophomore, junior year, and 3L year, uh, senior year. Yeah. And so 2L year, you know, you have to decide whether or not you were going to um, be a student attorney and work in these different fields like family law. Um, I think they even had a patent law thing. There was nothing take. like that at LSU. Wow. And so yeah. I got involved with the Marshall Brennan side of things. So that was a fellowship and mm-hmm. that was sort of my way of giving back where we went to local um, area high schools and we taught debate and basic legal um, basic, basic legal theories. Did you get credit hours for that? Yes. God, I've, yeah. I've said for a long time that I think the third year of law school or at least the sixth semester should be practical application like that, like like rotations in med school. Mm -hmm. Like you should Mm -hmm. go have to learn how to file a divorce pleading. You should learn how to defend an injury case. I could file Article 103s in my sleep. Yeah, Yeah. well, (laughs) I think I could have learned 103s when I was in middle school. You know what I mean? Like, But they don't teach you even how to do that. So Mm -hmm. you really feel like a fool when you start working at a firm and they're like, you don't know how to do what? Right. So so the second year at Southern, you so you did the Brennan, which was you Mm -hmm. go into the classroom. Right. So we did that, but we also did so well with those students that we were invited to D.C. to compete with other schools around the nation who also had the Marshall Brennan Fellowship and were doing the same thing. And our team came in second place only behind Yale, oh, wow. which is something that we were just like, what? Uh, that's this awesome. is incredible. What school were you in? Um, we went Baton Rouge School. Was it Baton Rouge High? The one that's on government. Not McKinley. No, 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 Bat- no. Okay. It's Baton Rouge yeah. High, Baton Rouge Prep now. I don't know. They've done some yeah, charter okay. stuff, I think. Right. But yeah, the one right there on government. Were, were um, you kind of confined to a classroom of uh, like civics or? Yeah, it- so it was civics and just um, pulling students who were interested in okay. learning more. Um, and it was an after school thing. So these students were very motivated sure, to sure. learn because they decided we're going to take this as an elective versus yeah something else. These are your student council kids. Oh, yeah, yeah. definitely. I I felt like I was back in high school and and being able to teach them some of those theories was also super helpful for us because if you can teach it, then then you obviously should know it. And I wish that I would have had that type of opportunity when I was younger. Um, I didn't really know anyone in politics or in law that I could reach out and touch. There were no, no attorneys in my family that I knew of. And so... What my parents did was 
they would expose it to me by taking me to the courthouse whenever we had breaks from school or, you know, some kids are like, let's go to McDonald's after I go to the dentist or the doctor. I'm like, is this a good day for us to go to court? Can we just sit in? Oh, and wow. my parents have always been very indulgent when it comes to if this is something you love, we'll cultivate that by exposing you the best way we can. But my mom's a teacher, and so she understood the importance of um, of cultivating any of those talents or interests that you have very early on, and all that did was just make me hungry for more. That's fantastic. Yeah. Are there any local programs? Like, are there is there anybody locally teaching high school kids? I know um, Huntington, I believe, has a program, and Carlos I'm, Carlos Prudum is mm-hmm. over there. Um, He's doing like a legal criminal justice type of Which, hybrid class. There's a there's a courtroom classroom set up in that Bipstall. Bozier Parish School for Technology and Innovative Learning. I've I been never a, knew that. I've been a judge. I, I, um, they like the, um, they have Trey a, Gibson at LSU S. Mm-hmm. He he does their debate program and and they do really well with it. But I don't oh, I don't know yeah, if that's yeah. like sort of a similar to what you're talking about. It's because you're you're sort of you're learning a process and an argument. That's right. that's what you're teaching me. You, mm-hmm. If you teach high school kids, ki- high school kids that are into debate, likely want are interested in going right. to law school. Right. So, but yeah. I know he. I don't think he's a lawyer um, that I know of. But I know uh, I met I, him I, through Rotary, and uh, yeah, I think he he runs a pretty good ship over he, there. He does a really like from what I've I've read. I, I don't know, but it seems like he's they have a really good program at LSUS for that, and I don't yeah. know. Of the local colleges, we don't have a lot of legal, you know, pre-law kind it's of coming, stuff. Though. Is it? We're getting a satellite Southern University Law Center yeah. up here. I'm so excited. I would have loved to be able to stay home um, or stay in the north um, for law school, but that wasn't an option for me. I love Baton Rouge, but after I was down there for almost 10 years and I was just like, okay, I'm ready Mm. ready to go home. Um, But it's coming and I'm hoping that part of their curriculum will be reaching out to these areas. Yeah, because there hasn't there hasn't ever been a law. Like if you want to go to law school, not in Baton Rouge, you can go to Jackson. Yep. And they have a program that teaches. Um, Mississippi College. Mississippi yeah. College yep. will teach a program. I actually know quite a few people who went to mm-hmm. Mississippi College. But <laughs> Right, but it's, that's, I mean, you can't do, I know somebody had talked about doing it in that old government building. The, fe- the old federal building, they were going to rehab it, get the asbestos out and put in the Pressler School of Law. It was a really big deal about seven years ago, and yeah. then it didn't come to fruition. Right. Um, so where are they going to locate the Southern Law Satellite? I think they're still deciding. Um, okay. On top of everything else, I'm also on the DDA. Yeah. So <laughs> We had Tim uh, Huck in here recently. Oh, yeah. I yeah. love Tim. Yeah. Tim is great. Tim came and um, made sure. One day I locked the keys in my car, and you know he, had, he I was downtown, and so he's down. Let me guess, he can get he can get your car unlocked. Yeah, he I, did. Yeah. It was great. Actually, he ran a lock company. He he has a lot of companies. He's yeah. he is a jack of all trades. Like that's what he was saying because his he told us about his father had a restaurant right across from George's where your parents were meeting. There what? used to be a place, but it may have been little bit before that but anyway he they had his father had a pizza restaurant called pizza king right there by centenary wow and then he said he grew up in there like learned a whole bunch of stuff about running business and mm-hmm. he's always just been into 
making businesses. Yeah, he, he and said he made, he made it big, and then he lost it all in his 20s on one business, and then he decided he needed to diversify yeah. and never be stuck in just all eggs in one basket again. So that's hence the lock business and the construction, the, the construction, and he, rental, was, all that stuff. Yeah. yeah. So all right, so you get uh, you get out of Southern Law School, and mm-hmm. you, did you move straight back up here? Did you do anything down there? Um, I came straight back home. I actually okay. was asked to come join the uh, legal services of North Louisiana. Okay, cool. Um, when it was under Judge uh, Emanuel, mm-hmm. and that's where I learned about family law and really important for me was learning about how many people do not have adequate access to the legal field and knowing what it is, um, what to do, just the most basic things of of seeking out a good attorney and having all of these issues that keep them from being able to rectify whatever legal situation mm-hmm. that they are in because legal services for those that don't know um, caters to underserved um, communities and so there's an income requirement for you to be able to use the services where we were so it's legal services of North Louisiana mm-hmm. um, on Travis, Travis Street, Street yeah. and so that was um, sort of my first introduction to which is why you can do 103's in your sleep right yeah. because you know we're limited in what we could do there um, we never took on any criminal cases yeah. it was only civil but we started the first it was the inaugural family law unit that handled nothing but the divorces and, and adoptions and um, it really showed me a lot about what it was like to be poor in Shreveport I didn't really have a clear understanding. I knew, you know, I had read like the Alice report. I knew that it was a thing. I knew the numbers and the stats, but meeting the people made it completely real for me. And I remember we were having this issue where why aren't they coming back to complete the divorce? Why do we have so many incomplete files that are just not going all the way? And we're racking our brains like, is it our hours? Is it something like, why are they just not showing up? And it was a very simple issue. They didn't have transportation. Mm -hmm. And so um, if you're someone who doesn't have a car and you're dependent on someone else to bring you to the law firm, bring you to court, then your attendance is going to be a bit spotty when it's necessary. And we decided that instead of just saying, oh, well, we'll just, you know, have to deal with the fact that we have these, um, these cases that we won't be able to close, um, we did something a little different where we made the family law unit mobile. Can I can I jump in real quick sure. here? So in order to get somebody divorced, you've got to meet with them. you got to yes. sign up. You know, you, you fill out what we call a pleading. Mm-hmm. And then you go file that thing. Right. But then you got to go back to court with the individual and yep. get it confirmed. So it's it's. If you're if you're not fighting over custody or fighting over property, which right. I'm assuming a lot of these people were not, mm-hmm. you, you have to. There's an initial process of meeting the client, right. getting documents filled out, uh, maybe having them sign some type of affidavit of verification. Yep. Sign, fine. Fi- everybody's happy that one time, right? But then you got to come back to court when the judge says you're due back in court to confirm that thing. Absolutely. So that's when transportation entered as an issue. To oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Also, if you decide that you are going to have the um, the spouse sign a waiver, so uh, to, having wait, someone need yeah. to maybe like that service spouse. waiver, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so then we would have issues with that. We'd have issues with service finding because, finding the absent yes, spouse. Yeah. Yes, because 
because if you're if you're poor, if you are someone who is from a low resource community, this person might be bouncing around from house to house, um, and then try to get that person to sign something, and they yes. don't know what they're signing, they don't know what they're giving right. up. Mm-hmm. But a, a, a one hundred three is uncontested. Is that essentially right. the same thing? Because mm-hmm. um, that's in Texas, the way they do that is if you can get you know the service waived, and there's an it's an agreed upon. Yeah. There's one day, like on Wednesday from 10 to 11, the lawyer can show up and do 50 files. Like, And you can do that here. You, you can do that. And 103 is that you live separate and apart for a period of time. Yeah. One year if you have kids, six months if you don't. Mm-hmm. And then you do all the process that Candace and I just talked about. So that's the 103. 102 is you file and then wait right. until that per, the period goes. So you can fight at, at the 102 level, right. and you could fight at the 103 level if right. a fight arises, but the 103 is we've already waited the requisite time period, now we're filing. Right. So that's the difference between a 102 divorce and a 103 divorce. But a lot of the, the in the in the impoverished community, you know, the, the, the guy had been separated yeah. from the woman for a long time. Right. She's right. trying to get services for the kid or, mm-hmm. or clean some title issues up of a car. Yeah. Or, you know, There's a lot of issues that divorce can solve. And finding that absentee parent or finding that absentee spouse kind of holds up the process. Absolutely. And that was just sort of my first um, introduction to having to do things a little differently and not being able to just sit back and wait for the community to come to you and knowing that it's okay for you to go out to them. What about like, what if, what about wills and that kind of stuff? Same thing. We did that. Um, I've talked to several people and they're like, you know, a lot of what happens in, you know, on like in Demetrius's neighborhood, mm -hmm. he'll have, you know, it's a middle-class block Mm -hmm. and, but there's a woman whose spouse has passed away or they're separated or divorced and the woman owns the house and then probably owns another house down the block because she's been, you know, working for some entity for a long time. She's gotten to her retirement, but she doesn't have a will. She passes away. Then there's two pieces of property mm-hmm. and then the children fight over the property, but yeah. there's no... Or they don't even fight. They just occupy the property. Well, right. Yeah, or the they don't fly. even worse. They don't occupy it. And then it... the weeds grow yeah, up yeah. and then people you know squat in there right. and then that detracts from the other yeah. parts of the neighborhood. Nobody gets a succession away. performed. Exactly. But we but you but that, that is a yeah, service we that that mm-hmm. will you go to them and, and Yeah, that's what that's what we did okay. not with uh, legal services. But but anymore. but there there's we still doing. a program. We talk about the yeah. mobile yeah. unit. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We went to local churches, especially when okay. you start talking about the wills and people who have time to meet in the middle of the day during the work day. Mm-hmm. The elderly. Yeah. They're meeting at their COA. So we mm-hmm. would go to Council on Aging mm-hmm. um, centers. We'd go to churches. We'd go to community centers. And we and we go to libraries, of course, letting them know when we would be there and just sort of putting out, um, using social media, putting something out with these local centers, advertising where we would be. And it got to a point where we just basically had to send invitations and choose which places we'd send an invitation to because we were overwhelmed really? with people who needed services, especially when you start talking about the divorces. There mm-hmm. are so many people who are just walking around married but separated because uh, getting a divorce is too much of a hassle. They're intimidated by the process of even walking into a law firm or a law office. And so... The idea that someone would come to them 
and I have to give all credit to our supervising attorney. She's um she's from Texas, but she was the one who was like, we could do this. We could get a printer. We could go to these local places. And that was my first introduction to organizing. And I didn't even know it. Yeah. When I decided to transition full time over into political organizing and um, I guess you could call it candidate preparation I realized that you had to do the same thing with a candidate with an issue. You can't wait for people to contact you um, and, and find out information because most people aren't going to do that. You have to put the info in their face. Mm-hmm. You have to do it in a way where you, you're communicating with compassion and understand not everybody's going to have the same base level of understanding mm-hmm. and be willing to explain yourself over and over and over again and break it down in different ways based on people's learning styles. All of this is important when you're trying to get someone to either understand the platform of a candidate or to understand the basis of an issue campaign. And that's how that transition worked well for me is you have to be willing, no matter if I'm a grass top organizer or a grassroots one, you have to be willing to talk to the people in a way that they understand and be willing to be completely wrong about what you assumed it is that they want. We can't go in with our own agenda and expect people to not give us ideas on what is actually important for them. And so that sort of um, segues into Yeah, well, I was going to ask you, so like what, in in going into a neighborhood, maybe you did have an agenda, Mm -hmm. and then maybe that agenda got turned on its head. So what did the communities that you were outreaching to, like what did they, what did they tell you their issues were that you needed to work on? Yeah, so we went in thinking, I can just tell you about um, community policing we think is great. Yeah. We think that it's not just about having more police presence if you think there's a crime problem, but having the right police there. And we had people tell us at these community listening sessions, wait a minute, we have a sheriff's race coming up. Can you tell us what the role of a sheriff is versus a police chief? Not realizing that this was a distinction that so many people didn't understand. Um, They did not know that the sheriff's department controls what happens with the jails. And so they'd be complaining about the police chief and maybe about what the police department wasn't doing. And it was like, wait, 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 you're, you're not even going to the, the right people or the right person to complain about this issue. And so sometimes your agenda isn't that you have the wrong thing on the agenda, but maybe you need to expand it a little bit to include um definitely include the political process. There are people who think that the sheriff is appointed Mm -hmm. the same as a police chief. When we know that there is an election, there are people who wonder, well, why isn't the police chief um, elected then and not understanding that that is an appointment? So getting them to know about the process is the first step. Getting them to care about the process is done by saying, and this is how it will affect you in your day to day life. The person you choose um, for sheriff is the person who's going to be making decisions about who's housed in those jails. And what we have going on now um, is having immigrants coming into um, occupy, occupy those spaces. Remember, we're now number two when it comes to being 
um, when it comes to incarceration rates. And so we have some beds that need to be filled. Um, and when I, I actually want to take that back. Those beds don't necessarily need to be filled, but they're empty. Those mm-hmm. beds are empty. Well, and, and you can get paid for those beds. And you get paid for those. So, And that's something that a lot of people weren't aware of. I bet a lot of people don't know how that system works. In fact, mm-hmm. I don't. I thought I kind of knew how it worked, and I talked to somebody else that mentioned that if it's a, if it's through a certain privatized company, the the state pays that privatized company under contract whether the beds are filled or not. Yep. But versus the the publicly owned jails really are pay per bed. Yep. And they are incentivized, therefore, to, to fill those to beds. fill the beds. Yeah. So with you allowing more people out based on some criminal justice reform issues that. Um, that talk about nonviolent offenders and early release, and then couple that with um, things like unanimous juries and less people being convicted. So they had a bit of a gap, and they filled that gap with those um, those who were coming to um, the states um, illegally, and I put that in quotation marks. Um, seeking asylum isn't illegal, but they would fill the jails with with these people, and they, they have already. In fact, um, this leads me to another point. I'm on the board of the Louisiana ACLU, and right now we were saying, you know, we're getting this influx of immigrants, and we don't know if that's necessarily legal um, because we were trying to fill our beds so that we could get paid per bed. And they ruled that it is actually illegal. And so I'm not sure what the next steps are going to be now, but you can't just have people flooding the state. And I'm, I'm talking right here, Bossier Parish and in New Orleans. What, what exactly is illegal? Um, having a large group of people being moved from, I'm not exactly sure where they were coming from, and moving them to Louisiana for the oh, sole purpose so, of filling those beds. And then had they committed crimes elsewhere, or had they just I been caught that, being illegally they, here in the state? They states? were just here, caught yeah, yeah. being here illegally. And, and so, so the, the state's trying to come up with a way to, to yeah, or, or some of these institutions. That's a federal, to, that's federal money, which is, right. you get paid more yeah. for a federal inmate than you do for a state mm-hmm. inmate, yep. and even more so than uh, like a, a parish, parish. Right. Yeah. So, so there's there's like a three tier system. Yeah. Yep. So federal inmates are worth more if you right. can. If right. You, if you can put them in the Bozier medium. Right. Where they keep a lot. But of there's the federal also inmates. some some issues. The only reason that I know this is I have often at work have to search other jails mm-hmm. for inmates, and when I go to do that, there's certain smaller jails that their websites were going down, and I was. Wow. They because they can't put a federal inmate on, you know, normal their normal system is everybody who who gets you know clocked in, mm-hmm. they they have a number and a name and a photograph and that's what's on the website. But these federal inmates like it you know, these are small jails. They don't have like an IT department. They have to wait for somebody to say like, "Hey, these guys we can't put on this public thing because they're not public." Right. But these guys are. So, so what that just led me to having to call the jails and then there's, you know, some lady there at the jail generally who knows every single person in the jail. Mm -hmm. If it's a hundred or 150 people, she can tell you who's in, who's out. And a lot of these are, you know, you get, you know, somebody who comes in for a DWI is, Mm -hmm. is different than somebody who's being held by a federal 
by ICE. Entity, by, yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, basically, yeah, it depends ICE on who has the jurisdiction to hold you. Right. Uh-huh. If the city has the jurisdiction to hold you, but the if, parish, but the like state, you're saying, the feds, if, yeah. if you have those beds, yeah. mm-hmm. then then you can go, well, we get twice as much for yeah. this bed if oh, we yeah. put it's an a, ICE Person it's like Tim Huck's P and L report from Pizza King. Yeah, and, <laughs> and, you know, you look at your P and L and figure those federal inmates are worth like a Supreme Pizza versus a cheese well, pizza. And I've had I've had meetings with with people um, as well, and that's that's what they tell. They're like, "Look, man, if if we are putting a guy in jail because he's he's mentally he's off his meds right. and he's out in the street yelling and screaming." He needs a hospital. Absolutely. But what happens is we we take him and then we put him in the jail in one of those beds, which then, you know, and we don't ha- they don't get you don't get meds in jail. You don't get any of that stuff. Yeah. So he's just in jail then yelling and disrupting everyone. <laughs> yeah. But people are happy because he's not on. They, we don't have to. We see don't it. see him. But it's mm-hmm. like there, there's a I can't remember the lady's name. But she wrote a book and it's all about sort of how we're using that system to we used to have a, a better system of mental health Absolutely. for uh, our citizens. But the funding has gone away mm-hmm. for, for the. So what happens now is you go to jail. Like, right. We've criminalized um, mental health issues. Right. And that's really unfortunate because it's one of the barriers that keeps people from seeking treatment is what there's a stigma still attached to it especially in the african-american community where you don't even mention that you're depressed it's getting better it's getting better with us you know with social media um giving people platforms to talk about it with even churches now recognizing you can pray and go seek therapy Mm -hmm. um and so I want to think that there is hopefully going to be some trickle down effect but that doesn't help the person who has not even been diagnosed yet. And we can't assume that officers will know the difference between someone who is um, severely depressed or even if someone is disabled in a way like who's autistic versus someone who um, who may actually be a danger because the training isn't there. Yeah. That's an issue. That's like, like shooting at someone because they didn't answer your question. Right. Well, well, well they're yeah. deaf. Well, yeah. You know? exactly. but, so. but, but that's that's a huge thing. that, mm-hmm. And that's sort of what I've noticed. Like, I'm not a lawyer, but I work, you know, with a bunch of lawyers. And so I, I, I noticed, like, training is a huge thing from both sides. Like, if you have a public defender who... Like, did you get defend like defense training when you went to the public? Man, theater? I got thirty felony files, and, I, and they it, put, yeah, they just hand them to you. Here's the, like, the jail. The jail is down Old Plain Dealing Road. Yeah, and uh, and the courthouse opens on Tuesday for felony, and, and sometimes you got to go to court on Friday, and then there's a jury term in about a month. Right, but, but, but like if <laughs> so you're, but I tried cases before I had that. I mean, I wouldn't have gotten the job had I not tried cases before. But um, but they are not give. They're not give. They don't. They're not. The public defender program doesn't have money to give you a. Di- I mean, you have CLE. No, it's, it's a min- I mean, just like a lot of laws, mentorship, a lot of right. Oh, but when you come out of law these, school, you don't know how to do much. Nope. But like what what Candace did in her second year, and then at Northwest Legal Services, I'm sure you had somebody who'd been there 20 years. Absolutely. It was a mentor. Mm-hmm. That's uh, what what people don't recognize about law practice is it's like 
you get this degree and you get this paper, but there's no training anywhere except whoever hires you better have a guy or a lady that's like, come here, let me take you under my wing. Right. Without but, that, but you, you get no training. Theoretically, you wouldn't. Um, I just got my driver's license. Here's a dump truck, right? It's like <laughs> yeah. you, you, well, you. This guy's driven a dump truck before. He can kind of tell you how to do well, it. Because yeah. you, you, you should start it like for criminal law, you should start some like, hey, this is misdemeanor okay. or a traffic ticket. And this is how the process is going to work. And then get. To, but you'll like your 30 files. Some of them were probably like murder. They so, didn't throw murders at the Bozier, the Bozier felony department for the public defender's office didn't our, our we had so few murders in Bozier the top dogs got that but, but, what yeah, but I mean I had like third you know third offense uh, schedule two possession I right. had wow. you know violent stuff you know early on but I mean I loved it too but if you're in a small too, parish but, and you're maybe the public defender and you work you know two, two parish it's like yeah, yeah. They, they're like there's nobody else to do it right um, right. and so yeah, resources are slim in that in that department well but but the, my, my point is the same for the police everybody yeah. you know like everybody seems at odds mm-hmm. are like oh the cops are doing this and the you know the DA's doing that and it's like wait a minute nobody's been trained everybody's trying to do their best if you're a cop and you're <laughs> there's a guy ranting and raving mm-hmm. you don't know if he's dangerous or not well, but but I'd, you, I'd say that you know everyone's doing their best well theoretically okay everyone, I'll, I'll let you have there there is yeah. there is a training issue mm-hmm. it's a, basically it all boils back down to education and what you're saying yeah. is like people don't come to get a divorce cuz they think it's a hassle or they think it's really expensive or they think it's all these other things and it's if they had an education about, hey, this is the process. And yes. if you could just have, I mean, if you could just like have a YouTube video of, hey, this is the process. You sign this, you sign right. this, you get, and then this Well, nobody and this wants and this you and to do that because then they're like, well, what's the use for the lawyers? Well, then? but maybe if you take that off the plate, mm-hmm. then they, they can get to, you know, a, a better, better service for everyone. Right. You know, the same as like ch- changing, uh, you know, to a unanimous jury. Right. Right. And that's, yeah, that that's was, education over time. Absolutely. Like people that aren't going to, you know, the courthouse every day, right. they don't have an understanding of, you know, a six pack, you got to have everybody. 12 pack, you can, you can have 10. 10 10's good. And right. there's a reason that that's all set up that way, which, Everybody knows. The history of it so, is astounding. Yeah. It was the first time I had actually seen something written into law that said it was for the sole purpose of um, preserving white supremacy. And right. so the fact that it was in print blew me away because usually, you know, being in the South, you say the things, but you add a little honey to it. You oh, don't yeah, just yeah, come don't just right come out, out and say it. Say it. Yeah. And yeah. so seeing that was um but that I law was, is reconstruction era yeah like yeah. and it didn't change until right 2019 yep it, it, it came about after uh blacks could serve on juries and then Absolutely. and then and because if we're going to have a couple of black folks on that jury Let's we'll, we'll let them we'll let them vote count. not guilty but yep. we need the 10 white folks right. to say guilty right. yeah. that's exactly yeah. what happened yeah um so 
that is one, of, and I want to make sure that I, I bring up votes, the yeah, name well, of the organization, let, Voices of the Experience. Um, let's segue into that. So you're okay. you're at Northwest Legal Services. Yes. You're in the community, and you're you're really a practitioner of law. You haven't hung a shingle. You're not at a firm. Nope. But you're in a community that needs lawyers. I'm not even someone at that time who has taken the bar. We have the provisional. Okay attorneys who are learning all of this stuff from the and so they're not even letting us out there to do anything except for the filings except for you know following the attorneys to um to court and learning all of this but you're but you're deep in the issues yes we're deep in the issues we're deep in the community yeah and we're finding out people are coming to us and you might get them to sign up because they need a divorce but they're telling you about everything that's going on because they think do you have do you have some clout with the mayor? Oh yeah. Um, my water bill. This is what's happening. Yeah. Can you tell me what's going on with the uh, Medicaid? Yeah. Can you tell me what's going on with? I mean, um, I have a landlord issue. Yeah. And so you go from being this wide-eyed um, student attorney. I don't want to say student attorney because we had just graduated, but you're you're still learning. Yeah. And you realize that there are much bigger issues than just the divorce. And you hear it so often that you find out that this is about day-to-day survival in our city. And it's not great for everybody mm-hmm. that some people are merely surviving. And I'm worried about whether or not I can close this file because they've been late. Well, they're late because the bus system wasn't always, you know, it's much better now, but it wasn't always, um, they weren't always punctual. Or, and if you miss this connection, then you won't be able to make the other one. And Mm -hmm. sometimes you have people coming from all over because legal services of North, um, Northwest Louisiana covered 14 parishes. So imagine being someone who's coming from Wachita. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so to that's get, why, yeah. Yeah, you know, they have their own, um, but we were the only ones that were housing the flu unit, fam, family law unit. Um, so you would have the, the Washita Parish um, satellite office, but they didn't handle the things that we were doing. And so sometimes they were expecting them to drive all the way from Monroe. Again, we're talking about people who are struggling for basic survival day to day. Getting a ride to Shreveport from Monroe it's almost as impossible as the saying, find an attorney that you can pay $5,000 to. And so that transition into the community work came about um, because I saw that there was a greater need that went beyond just the law. I saw that there was something that I could do that could be all-encompassing. Don't get me wrong, attorneys are doing great work. I know quite a few of them who are like, just, I mean, just amazing. Um, And they just don't have the time. And I think when you start talking about politics, it can feel a little bit limited as well because people think it's one thing. They think it's just um, running for office. They think it's being an elected official, not realizing that there are people who are helping elected officials shape their um, policies mm-hmm. and they're getting that information from people who are on the ground. Um, you have legislators who are trying to always figure out what's the next bill that I can sponsor. Let me make sure I'm doing my job. You have to go to the people. And if the people aren't talking to you, then usually lobbyists are. And so there has to be that balance with lobbyists maybe pushing for an issue 
and having a people's agenda. And that's what my work with the Power Coalition focuses on. And what I was saying earlier about when we were talking about the unanimous juries, that all came about because of the grassroots efforts of a group called VOTE, Voices of the Experience, that consists only of people who have been formerly incarcerated who are now getting into this community work and they want their reentry to look a little different than what we think reentry should look like. They don't want it limited just to being able to get a job, um, being able to be with their family. They want to have a say so in policy changes because they've been on the inside and they know how difficult it is to, um, to not end up back in jail once you get out. And so they were the ones. Norris Henderson is the executive director there, and he is the reason why we were able to get that act passed. Um, As I understand, mm -hmm. when you're incarcerated, the customer service is pretty low. <laughs> it's horrible. Okay, that's, yeah. People assume if you're incarcerated, it's because you're supposed to be there. Well, And what yeah. we found is, there are people who are in jail. Uh, they didn't commit the crime or they committed the crime. But if you look at maybe other people who have also committed the crime, they didn't go to jail. They got probation. They got um, a lawyer. Um, yeah, 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 they could afford a, lawyer, a private attorney um, or there was some diversion um, program that they could go to instead. And once you start witnessing those discrepancies. Have, have, we were talking about podcasts, other podcasts before mm -hmm. we started this. Do you ever listen to Serial? Yes. Season three takes she's place. she's talking about the court, when she's the, in the courthouse. The whole season she's in Cincinnati yep. or, I think it's Cincinnati. One Cincinnati of the, or Cleveland. Maybe Cleveland. Cleveland. One of the big, one of the big Ohio cities. I, and it brought me back. When I listened to that, mm. if, if. I, I wish people could understand if you don't understand the the criminal justice system or if you don't understand what poverty feels like yeah. in in Bossier, in Minden, yeah. in Shreveport, go hang out at the courthouse in the criminal divisions mm -hmm. for a, a couple of days, two or three days. Get a copy of the docket, print it off the Internet and go sit there and, and mark an X through everybody that actually has private counsel. Mm. You'll get through about 10 or 15% of the docket that has private counsel. The other 80%, sometimes more, of a 15-page docket is represented by an individual whose, whose salary is derived from the tax base who's a public defender because most of those people in there can't afford private counsel. And that's not, I, I don't think it's because private counsel is charging too much or anything. I just right. think that's the nature of our system. Now, mm -hmm. Once you're in that jailhouse, go to the jail if you want to understand what it feels like to be in jail. Go meet somebody. And as a public defender, you're in the jail all the time because yep. all your clients are in jail, or at least 60% of them. A big chunk of them that aren't in jail don't come see you. Right. But the ones that are in jail, you get to see and you get to talk to. And when they get out of that place, where do they go? They can't. They don't have a job. You're going to check the box. It says, I'm a felon. You ain't going to get an apartment. Right. You don't have a job. Mm -hmm. Like. So you can't even afford an apartment, even if you could get an apartment. It's not like you got ten thousand in savings, right? So like, and then what do you do? You're looking for a job. You're looking for housing. You go back to live with mama, mm -hmm. or you live with your cousin who's still selling. Yeah. You know, and man, y you people don't get it. They don't. 
And I, I, that, it. It was, I, I was never going to do criminal defense when I was in law school. And when I got that public defender job. I've heard so many people say, like, I, I didn't, I, I didn't, gonna go I wasn't going to do yeah. criminal you law. Get, you can get addicted to that courtroom mm-hmm. I, because it's fun. The yeah. court, the oh, trial yeah. is fun. I mean, it can be a drug. A jury is a drug. It is. But the, the nature of the, the environment itself, people don't get, and then public defenders get desensitized after a couple years, prosecutors, judges, everybody in the system forgets how bizarre it is. Yeah. And then when you go back to listen to season three of Serial, or when I go back to a courtroom and actually sit there all day, the, the bizarre nature blows your mind. And I don't think mm-hmm. most people get that. I remember something in that podcast where they were talking about the fees and how one of the um, one of the people that was being interviewed was like, well, what is this fee? What does this fee mean? And the attorney couldn't explain it. They were like, oh, I don't I don't know what that that fee is. And and she asked, what about this one? And he was like, oh, I didn't even know they, they charged for that. What is a what is a disposal fee doing on this? And this is all given to um, this is all given to the plaintiff or, or the defendant will actually pass along to the defendant. And oh, yeah, it's you, like two page form that yeah. says you got to check this box. Mm-hmm. And there's some courthouses and some parishes in North Louisiana where the where, when, when you do the when the judge gives the boy in and you have to do the plea, there's paperwork. Yeah, there's a lot of paperwork involved. And yeah, it's a check the box. You got to pay this fee to the, the this group and the then the sheriffs get this fee Mm -hmm. and then oh well then there's the incarceration fee and they're like well I'm not incarcerated what is that well it goes to the jail what about so you're pleading you got some cocaine okay well now you have to pay you know you might not have only paid 40 bucks for your public defender right but now you're about to pay fines court costs and you're going to come out of pocket $2,500 before you're off probation oh probation 75 a month and you're on probation for two or three years oh you have to have a job you got to stay clean you got to take drug tests and you better be living in a place with no firearms and no other felons oh go all right good luck right yeah it's you're set up to fail good luck like absolutely set up to fail and that's you know the people, the people that can overcome that—it's like, oh yeah, they, those people should be running companies. It's like, absolutely. come on, man, yeah. these guys have gotten like, if yeah. they have been, you know, convicted of a, a felony and then they get out and then they can turn it around yeah. and do anything—they've got a crazy amount of skill set. It's, it's, that, it's right. like, yeah, it's just amazing the amount of of how that system is structured. So we, we like talking solutions on here. So mm-hmm. you, you've been in it a lot more recently than I have. And, and public defenders do amazing work. Oh, yes, absolutely. But, but a lot of times you feel kind of helpless because you know this you're putting this person back on a treadmill. Right. Or you got a great deal, so it feels good, but you know it's short term. Mm-hmm. And so, so what solutions have you found within the communities that you've worked in? Making sure they understand that they have the right to speak up for a better life. There, and I know that seems really fluffy. No, they're, they're disempowered from an early age. Yes. Early on, they're like, and, and then the incarceration builds into that, and mm-hmm. then the probation builds into that. And so, like, I get that totally. I they, totally understand that. They think that that has to be a way of life. If I'm from this area, and I'm sure you all, and I have to bring Demetrius up again because he talks to me about the Queensboro neighborhood and just what he witnessed growing up. Mm-hmm. And so I have to use other people's examples. I grew up in Houghton. Um, 
crime is pretty much non-existent there. And so everything I learned came from people telling me, this is what our existence is like. And I'm thinking, this is wild. You're only you're only 10 minutes away, 15 minutes away from where I live. And yet we have these completely different lives that we live. And so empowering them is the first step. You empower people by letting them know what their rights are. Mm-hmm. That's something that it's so simple, yet it's something we miss constantly. Um, people don't know what they have a right to. Um, letting them know what they can do when it comes to having an issue, who do I go to? Knowing the right person to go to. The fact that you probably have people come to you and while you're defending them on one thing, they might ask you about something completely separate. Um, having something in place and having those resources available so you can say, you can go here, you can call here. And making sure that those resources you give them are legitimate. Um, will there be someone actually manning the phone if that person calls? We're dealing with people who don't have a whole lot of time because not only is poverty expensive, it's time consuming. I remember um, when I, I read over the Alice report and I think it was someone from whom, from the United Way who said that she had a class full of college students from a sociology class come and figure out what it was like in the in a day in the life of like a single parent who had to get one form signed having to catch the bus to go to the school to get the form having to then take the bus to the doctor's office to get that form signed and then having to go back to the school and give it to them and you spend about four hours a day whereas that would have taken me maybe a total of 45 minutes And that's if you end up having everything that you need when you go pick up the form and you take it to these different agencies. And so the bureaucracy is something that keeps people from being able to have a better life as well because they get tired. Um, If they're turned down, let's say you're dealing with something as simple as, I don't have an ID. It wasn't until I was working with an organization that helped people get photo ID, helped them get their license, that you realize how many things you can't do without one. I'm used to it only being an inconvenience because maybe I can't go to my favorite bar, you know? Um, But there are people that are trying to open up an account for the first time because they're tired of putting the money under the mattress, you know? Um, they, They want to do something that brings them into the 21st century. Like we we take that kind of thing for granted. And when you look at how far your DMV is from most people, you real and then the, just the being at the the Department of Office of Motor Vehicles at all can be frustrating. Um, not knowing what forms you need, mm-hmm. maybe being illiterate and not being able to read about all the forms you need. Mm-hmm. And and so you look at all of these things in totality and you realize that the issue here is we are not empowering our communities with the most basic um, necessities. And the way you fix that is by empowering them. The way you empower them is by asking, what do you need? Don't go in with your own agenda saying, well, we've determined based on these studies that this is what you need. No, what I might think you need, maybe you don't care about voting until you know that grandma is being taken care of because her insulin is outrageous. Um, Maybe you don't care about what I have to say regarding um, redistricting because you don't even understand that 
You don't even know who your city council person is. We have to do a better job of empowering people with information. If we give them the knowledge first, if we make it easier for them to access that information, then we can go in and say, and this is how you apply it. This is how you use it. I have an issue with elected officials who stop campaigning once they're elected. You should be campaigning in a way where you're getting the information out to your communities. That should be something that you do constantly. Don't just wait until it's time for people to vote again and then explain to them this is what a Caddo Parish Commissioner does. Or And these are just examples I'm using. This is what the governor is in charge of. This is what the lieutenant governor does. Um, it seems like this should be an infographic. Absolutely. Like I some, agree. something, and I'm not, I'm not, I mean, I'm sort of kidding, but mm-hmm. realistically, where if you used a graphic designer to say, hey, people that maybe aren't, you know, super well educated, right. let's give them something they can see. Like, here's what your city councilman, here's who your city councilman is, yes. and here's what they're in charge of. We're if you've got a problem it. with these things, that's, and you can't like go in their office and yell at them, but you, right. like, there's some steps you can go through to say, hey, I'm in, I'm one of your constituents and this is uh, important to me. Yeah. But um, like in a way to like funnel frustration rather than just be like, go to a city council meeting and well, like right. yell. But well, I mean, that's, that's, not, that's yeah. not reasonable for most yeah. people because yeah. they, I think they start at like three o'clock. Yeah. Yeah. Um, most people are at work. Yeah. You know, if they're able to get a job, they're, they're at work at three o'clock in the middle of the day. And we can't just put an email on there and think that that's okay because then you're looking at digital literacy and assuming yeah. people have that base understanding um, and have access to a smartphone, a laptop, and if, even yeah. if they go to internet. the library, the internet, yeah. and even, and I'm sure, again, y'all are going to get tired of me bringing up Demetrius, but I didn't even realize digital literacy was a piece that was missing until I started learning more about some of the local things going on. Well, so sort of the reason that we started doing this is because mm-hmm. like there's all these conversations that seem to like sort of overlap, and then you're like, wait, Demetrius is talking about that. Yeah. So it's like, I think that, like, would you be willing to come back here? Like, hey, I've been talking to you about this. Yeah. Like, would you come back here with somebody that you want to talk to? Because that's what we've been trying to engage people that are like, look, we'll set the platform up and we'll help you do it. I'll sit right here and I'll twist the little knobs and make sure everybody can sound good. But like, bring people here who have things that are constructive to say about the city. I don't want... We never intended this to be like, uh, you know, some kind of shouting match political right. show. But mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, from what you've told me, from what Demetrius told me, from we're just two old white guys. So our our experience is much different than your experience is going to be. However, there is overlap, and we are all citizens of the same we, place. Absolutely. Yeah, and yeah. really, you mentioned fifteen minutes away in Houghton. But I mean, th- think of the, well, I call them the enclaves mm-hmm. all around Shreveport. And you can, you can get on 49 and buzz off to your enclave or you can if you have uh, a car. hop on I-20. Yes. No, but I'm talking about the people in the enclaves. Yeah. Like I'm not, I'm not talking about the people without cars. Yeah. I'm talking about people who can get out of any troubled area they want to very quickly. And Shreveport has all these, I mean, I think Highland's beautiful and mm-hmm. I think Allendale's beautiful, but there's, there's plenty of beautiful places in this town where people can get away and they kind of forget about what really goes on in a city. But we all yeah. inhabit a very, a very small geographical area. Mm-hmm. And we, Shreveport will not move forward. We will not make the proverbial, the 180 without 
we don't need 100 percent, but right. we need 60 percent critical mass. We need 60 percent yeah. of the people moving forward in a yeah. in some cohesive direction. Again, the reason for the podcast. And you yeah. can't get 60 percent of the people by only interviewing or talking to the, the upper echelon of the folks that, you know, but what we want to bring people together that have common interests that are moving the city forward. Absolutely. So um, to answer your question, yes, whoever yeah, you think yeah. that I need to bring back. And, uh, well, I'm saying if you're yeah, talk, you like in your day to day, if you're talking to anybody and you want to come in and talk for 20 minutes, be like, you explain that very well. Come with yes. me. We sit them down oh, right here. Sure. We put it out. Yeah, like, we'll just record it. I'll cut it together. We'll put it out that day. It's like, it's, you know, it's not a 24 hour news network, but right. it's the, the, just to get like, so people know mm-hmm. if you need a divorce, go to, right. here's the website, you know, like if you don't have access to that, call this phone number. Mm-hmm. If you don't have access to that. Yeah. Like if, you, like if you're working in a nonprofit space and you have a lot of people and, you, and you're there, like I'll take Jordan and Janet, Janet Mendocine and Jordan Ring as an example, the MLK Health, you have a, a, a large segment of the population. That, that you work with that may not have the resources to afford blah 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 right so and maybe they're listening to this or and, and they can say oh I need to I need to reach out to Candace mm-hmm. so and, and that's one reason we're publishing these is to have these same conversations that we had before we started recording them but if enough people listen we can connect the dots right I love that I think that when you start looking at these ecosystems and that's what I'm sort of gathering from you all we can figure out who plays what part. And I, I think what's really frustrating for me is seeing so much duplication when we could be coming together and have a, a concerted effort mm-hmm. to use all of our resources. Um, <laughs> the whiteboard. Is, is that yeah. something that you he all- did, He did this like six months ago. He sent uh-huh. me a photograph of a whiteboard that he and a couple other guys put together. And it was, you can elaborate, but it, there was a lot of There's, overlapping organizations. We identified so all of the committee, you know, from committee 100 to um, the city council, like each chamber of commerce. Cha- yeah, yeah, the chamber, like everyone is trying to do something. Yeah, like, operating but, in those silos. But a lot of people overlap and mm-hmm. then they're become, you know, obviously once. Those, those. Are we going to talk about that? Or we're competing for the same pool of money. Well, I, I'm not because it, what we're doing that, is you, completely you, different. Well, but but, but ultimately, when the money comes into it, yes, mm-hmm. then people get at odds, and then it's like, well, we want we don't want to tell them about that. It's if we're not all moving forward, then somebody's getting held back. Yeah. And I and I understand that everybody, you know, has their own agenda to push, but at a certain point. It can't just be like, you're wrong, and this is why you're wrong, and until you agree with me, we're not going to Yeah, some towns can afford to do that. I don't think Shreveport's in a position where it can afford for good people that are trying to do well to compete with other good people who are trying to do well. Yeah, and it's it's very similar to like Shreveport and Bossier, too, where it's like, oh, we're separated by this river. It's like, Mm -hmm. okay, but we're... Really, we're all we're all in the same the same boat. So, like having a downtown office, and you know, my parents—they live in Bossier Parish. I grew up in Bossier Parish. I chose Shreveport because, for a girl from the country, this is very um, cosmopolitan for me to be able to have a downtown. We talk about that a lot too. It's like our identity sort of can get confused with. Dallas or a much larger mm-hmm. market and it's like we're we're really like we're Birmingham we're, we're, we're Jackson we're but That's, a small community yeah. and most of the people who come to our community are from 
a the, couple the miles. Longviews or the South Arkansas, and we're the yeah, big city. Absolutely. Yeah, this is the yeah. big city for small cities. Right. We're not Dallas. We're not. We don't have an international airport. We don't have like all of those things. However, we have access to them. They're they're yeah. not very far away, but our identity seems to be. I don't know. It seems more the last couple weeks and months doing this. I see more of sort of how the identity is taking shape and, mm-hmm. and people are kind of owning like, no, it's not a big giant thing, but we can make what we want happen right. and we, we just have to work together to do that. And sometimes that means compromising, you know, on, on both sides. I don't so, think we have to worry about being the next Dallas if we're focused on being the best Shreveport and using the the little bit of, um, of identity we have or just making that that identity ourselves. I think there's something very exciting about trailblazing and identity with us being at the northern half of the state and and hearing what people from down south say in New Orleans about, oh, anything above Alexandria, that's basically East Texas, South Arkansas. Everything above I-10. Right. And so, you know, recognizing that we are a part of Louisiana, but in in being knowledgeable and acknowledging that we we do sort of have that um, East Texas type of... um, cuisine at times when I think about like our obsession with Tex-Mex yeah. um, but there's a way to there's a fusion that can happen you know we uh, are Louisiana and, I'm and I think very it adamant is happening about that. Hardhead oh, yeah. Harris and I had a long conversation about identity mm-hmm. and Treeport having this thing where we're trying to be somebody else especially in, in recent years but I've got a I've got a poignant question for you that kind of gets back to your what, what, what you're passionate about mm-hmm. I do see Shreveport's identity forming, and I, and I think it's really formed. It's starting to form itself in the last 10 years. I think that the people between the ages of 20, 25, and 45 are the ones making that identity happen. Yeah. We're not trying to be Dallas anymore. They, I, you know, we're, not, we're not New Orleans. We don't need to be. Right. Um, but most of, and I, I don't think it's people of affluence that are creating that. I think it's very educated, entrepreneurial folks that are creating that. Mm-hmm. So. The, the communities that are that are some of which are impoverished, some of which are just somewhat disenfranchised. How do you bring them with us? How do you get them involved in that, uh, you know, identity, at, at least acknowledgement and, and make them feel a part of a Shreveport moving forward? Well, I think it starts with first going to the communities, not asking them, come to us and tell us what you want. Okay. Go to them on their turf. Okay. If you want to figure out what Highland needs, you go to Highland. You don't ask them to come to Cedar Grove. Okay. If you want to figure out what Cedar Grove needs, you go to Cedar Grove. You don't ask them to come to Airport Park. And so once you do that and you ask, what is it that you all see that could work for your neighborhood? And you'll start figuring out that there's a common theme that everybody wants. That's going to, you know, it's going to be safety. It's going to be infrastructure issues. But you'll also see, hey, we want to be able to hold these types of events in our park, but we feel like maybe the police might not be happy about that. Um, Understand that there are some significant cultural differences that we need to bridge as well. Um, There was an event hosted here. I think it was, uh, what was it called? It was during Labor Day weekend where they had the soiree, the, sim- the yes. summer soiree. Summer soiree. It was fantastic. It was beautiful. And I was looking around like, there should be way more people here. I mean, I saw the downtown riverfront transformed into something that looked like it was an, another city. And I had and, to And remember. Matt Snyder yes. was Sylvester one half. Marshall. Sylvester Marshall. Uh-huh. 
And it, tell me, Sylvester, I, I've wanted to have Matt and Sylvester in here to oh, talk about do. that event. Yeah, and talk about right. what it's like to have a white guy that's predominantly done events. Yep. That that you know his target market is there's a lot of white folks that attend right. those events. Right. Um, and that's not to say he didn't want black folks there. He right. did, but mm-hmm. that's just that's Shreveport. That's Shreveport. It, it's a segregated society. Mm-hmm. And so Sylvester kind of does the same thing mm-hmm. in the African American community. Absolutely. And so these two guys came together. Yeah. And it was the first year. It was the yeah. first year. But I heard some great things about it. it so was tell awesome. me tell me about it. It was so fun. Um, so with this, it was hot. Uh, <laughs> yes. We were, got out there like nine thirty, and I was like, "Why is it still ninety degrees?" Mm-hmm. But we brought up, and when I say we, it was actually him. He brought up um, a brass band. And so one of the things that I think is important is just sort of bridging the state whenever it comes to what people consider to be real Louisiana. And so bringing that brass band up here was really awesome and gave people who had been to New Orleans and understood sort of what I call, um, it's called fet culture, which is, you know, party culture. Mm -hmm. Um, Having that brass band up here and then having an opportunity for people to just be able to let loose. Seeing your mayor as something like that is just like, oh, you're not just up at Government Plaza wearing a suit all the time and you're seeing them amongst the people and being able to just mingle and talk about things um, that are important to millennials that are important when it comes to city development and being able to see what this city can look like when people care to bring events like that back was something I found super important. Um, It was fun. The next day, um, picnic in the park, having Manny Fresh here, I mean, I don't know anyone else who's brought, you know, one of the the hot boys, am I getting that right? Yeah, Um, here, and so that's like juvenile. Manny Fresh, Lil Wayne, that whole group. But having him here and then opening it up to the public and saying, you know, anyone who wants to come out can, that, and bringing them into downtown. There are probably other places that Sylvester could have chosen for his target demographic that they would have maybe felt more comfortable. Yeah. But him deciding to have each of these events at the city core where I think is how you build up your city as a whole. It's uh, focusing on the development of that downtown core. And Matt would agree with you. A lot of his Absolutely. a lot of his demographic over the years is going to feel more comfortable at the Norton or at Betty yes. Virginia or in Providence. Where That's he's hosted, important. He's hosted fantastic events, but mm-hmm. downtown's the core. It is the core. And if you can develop out from there... I think it says a lot about bringing the city together because that's that that's that neutral turf I, where I like downtown belongs to everybody or it should and the fact that they're holding more events there I think is indicative of them trying to cross this um, bridge figuratively and literally where it's not just for this type of community or that type of community it's for anyone who cares about having a good time Mm -hmm. it's for anyone who cares about having a sense of community Um, and it's for anyone who wants to see how can I maybe replicate things like this and it doesn't have to be necessarily an event or a soiree like that but just saying you can stay right here you don't have to travel to Dallas to have that type of um that type of feeling or to have that type of experience because we're bringing it to you here. We've got to do a better job of making it easier for people to bring those types of cultural events here. There's so much red tape um, 
that is a little bit unnecessary at times and I'll you know I'll go ahead and say that sometimes I think it's discriminatory in its practices um, that don't doesn't allow for more cultural centered events because not everybody's trying to hear me talk about voting all the time mm -hmm. not everyone's trying to come to a community meeting all the time mm -hmm. but if you can do something like Sylvester did where it's can't just come to this mm -hmm. you'll be able to talk about the information people yeah. need about getting ready to vote and I, now I've got you hooked you know yep. good old bait and switch where you came to have a good time but I also educated yeah. you too um, if you can learn to do that in a way where people come to expect it now you have a party with a purpose yeah. as well. Well, sports brings people together mm -hmm. of, of all races, music yep. and food. Yes. And yes. If, if those three things, you know, nobody cares who's cooking good food. Nobody cares. Nobody cares <laughs> who's playing good music. Shout out to Orlando. Sorry. Uh, I just yeah. have to talk. If you, have you all been to Orlando's yet? Because we're, we're going to go if you haven't. We're going for lunch. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I'm, Orlando's is going to be all about incredible. It. Nice. All right. So you brought some paperwork. I did. Um, talk about it. So the people's agenda. We've okay. been talking about how you have to go to these communities and you can't go in with your own agenda. Yeah. And we decided to do something different where going up and down the state, Power Coalition is not just Shreveport, New Orleans, it's Baton Rouge, it's like Charles. Um, what were some of the common themes that came out of those conversations? And we found that there were four. What people are um, worried about things that people care about and want to work on within their communities. The first being expanding economic opportunity. We know that that basically means we need jobs, but not just any jobs. They need to pay a living wage. Um, that also talks about legislation that can help with that. So the Power Coalition has this initiative called Unleash Local. And what that basically is referring to is preemption. Preemption is just a big fancy word for, I have the authority to tell you to do this and you can't go around it and do something else. Right now, the state has preemption on minimum wage. The local governing bodies are saying, we want to be able to set our own minimum wage for our city because the cost of living in New Orleans is different from the cost of living in Shreveport, is different from the cost of living in Monroe. We should be able to determine what is a set minimum wage for us here. In almost every major city, three out of four, I think Alexandria was the only one, um, they may have gotten their resolution together by now, um, said, yes, this is something that we believe in, that we want to be able to um, work on within our communities. And thankfully, Mayor Perkins was on board and absolutely was um, phenomenal at it, helping make sure that um, the city council also was on board and Councilwoman Fuller was really um, was instrumental in helping with that too. So that's the economic economic opportunity portion. And then secondly, continued and sustained criminal justice reform. Some of what we talked about with um, having legislation like unanimous juries the restoration of rights for those who were formerly incarcerated, and then continuing to seek justice um, and restoration for the many people who were jailed um, unfairly, and doing our part to help those who are dealing with reentry issues, mm -hmm. because that's really important. It's not enough to just say, okay, you've been released. 
what do we do to help them once they're back in our communities, once they're trying to get involved and do it in a way that, um, and I keep wanting to use the R word that I cannot, recidivism, yes, Mm -hmm. um, trying to prevent that, the return to um, prison. And then third, prioritizing fiscal fairness. We know that um, there are quite a few wealthy corporations and people who have a smaller tax burden than your average citizen. We don't think that's fair, but it's not just about it's unfair. What are we going to do about it? Who do we go to? We need people to understand that that's a legislative issue. That's something that can happen with the school board when you start thinking about um, things like ITEP. People don't know the, People don't understand really how everything intertwines and they don't think about school board when they think about tax burdens on corporations Mm -hmm. and how that's something that could directly benefit our schools. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've heard teachers saying that they're still having to buy their own school supplies. Um, That's something that we would not necessarily have to do if we had more dollars going to our schools versus um, these corporations Mm -hmm. getting these tax cuts. And then lastly, Um, The one that's a little bit more, it's a little heavier, ensuring fair and equitable electoral districts. Mm -hmm. And I break it down like this. If we're all in the same neighborhood, you and I live on Elm Street and you live on Pine Street, we would assume that because we're all in the same neighborhood on the same street that we'd have the same city councilwoman, we'd have the same um, representative. But what people end up doing is what's called gerrymandering. And I'd love to go into like why that word is used, but for another time, what that does is it not just splits maybe our street down the middle where you are over there by yourself and you can't join with us to figure out what's Mm -hmm. best for the neighborhood and effectively splits your power as well because we can't come together on one solution that works for our neighborhood Mm -hmm. if according to um, this city council, um, you're not included in that district. Mm -hmm. And we want people to know that's not something that has to continue being the way it is. Mm -hmm. They're redrawing lines all the time. That's not okay. But people don't even know that it's something that they can stop. We can talk to the candidates. We can go to them and ask them about this agenda. And my big thing is about accountability. I don't want you to just show up and vote. I want you to be what we call a power voter. I want you to be someone who holds your elected officials accountable. And the way that you do that is by holding them accountable for what they say when they're running um, as a candidate. And so taking everything that we've learned from the listening session and what we have on the agenda and then asking the candidates themselves about these things and where they stand on it, we then will print a report card of sorts, a score kind of like an accountability card. Absolutely, yeah. a score card, a score card, um, where we say, "Hey, we're giving this out because we're a five hundred one c three. We're just giving you the information. This is what um, the sheriff candidate said when it comes to the importance of community policing, getting maybe some training when it comes to those with developmental disabilities. This is where they said they stood on that." And then when you have that information and you know what to hold people accountable for based on what you thought is imp- thought was important, then you feel more powerful. Mm-hmm. You feel empowered to go to those elected officials and say, this is what you said you were going to do. You're outside of your 100 days and I haven't heard you mention, mention yeah, yeah. anything about this. What's your plan going forward? We have it recorded that this is what you said that you found important and that you mm-hmm. were going to do. So, um, it's a good idea. 
Yeah, well, thank you. Um, so that's it, the four. That's the four for the people's agenda. Those the, are the four points. The four points of the people's mm-hmm. agenda. Yep. So what else you got over there? I also just have some information about the restoration of rights for former, um, formerly incarcerated people. You're going to send. You've sent me links to all that stuff, haven't yes. you? Mm-hmm. Okay, and it'll be up on the three one eighty website. Awesome. All right. Um, the big thing is, if you are someone who is a former felon. These are the um, steps you have to take to be able to regain your voting rights. They've been restored, but you have to regain them. It's not automatic that Mm -hmm. you're now automatically registered to vote. You have to have been off of um, probation or parole by March 1st. And so I'll even break that down. If you've been on parole for at least five years, Mm -hmm. you got your voting rights restored. If you're still on probation, you're okay. You just could not have reoffended by the time you go register to vote. Okay. Unfortunately, yesterday was the deadline to register in person. However, we have until the 21st for you to be able to register online. Okay. And so that won't um, that won't unfortunately. That won't be something that if you're a former felon, you'll be able to do because there's paperwork involved that you have to take to the registrar um, of voters. So you wouldn't be able to vote October 12th, but we want you to go ahead and get registered to vote anyways because you'll be eligible to vote in the runoff. But did you have statistics at Northwest Louisiana Legal Services mm-hmm. about the, the percentage of population that, that has a felony conviction on their record? I don't know that. It's just, I, I can't remember, but I, the last time I saw it, mm-hmm. it's astounding. Wow. Like, I mean, like it, if if you pull it up, like the percentage of African American males, mm-hmm. but let, you know, throw an age out there between the ages of eighteen to thirty, thirty five, that are that either have a conviction on their record or, or somehow currently involved in the criminal justice system yeah. as a defendant or a probationer um, or a parolee. Um, it, anyway, the, the figure is astounding. It it's a it's a double digit percentage. Wow. And, yeah. It, it, anyway, the the point of that is it's a it affects a large segment of Shreveport's mm-hmm. population. Right. And so that's why this is so important yeah. so that people know that this restoration of rights, you no longer have the excuse of I can't vote because I'm a felon. That yeah. means that I can't make change anywhere. Yeah. Well, we fix that now. And so. We just need them to do their part of being able to show that paperwork and probation and parole here. Uh, Mr. Tuggle over at the local probation and parole, he has been amazing in making sure to get the word out. We did a we had a bus tour come through Shreveport. The Black Voters Matter bus came through and Power Coalition joined vote joined with us to go to the probation and parole office off of Yuri Drive. Mm-hmm. And we were out there all day registering yeah. people to vote. And it was phenomenal. It was also really surprising how many people did not know that their voting rights have been yeah. restored. And so yeah. that goes back into, it can't just be about presenting information. What's your marketing look like? Yeah. Is this well, capturing? Pe- people, mm-hmm. felony's a bad word, right? Yeah, and DWI yeah. third's a felony. Right, right. Marijuana too, second possession marijuana is a felony. Um, yeah. Possession of an Adderall pill at, at your at your local Listen student law students. library. Right. <laughs> possession of an Adderall right. without a prescription is a felony offense. Possession yeah. of a Dexedrine, of a, you know, what's what's the Ritalin, that might be a middle grade, but anyway, mm-hmm. 
point of that is there's a lot of felonies out there that we that man I got out of law school and practiced law for a few years before I got into criminal law and yeah. I was and I remember reading the schedule twos and schedule threes and schedule fours and going whoa yeah yeah because we all know someone or maybe that person ourselves and you realize that if i got caught doing this i would be considered a felon for the rest of my life yeah exchanging some of your adderall for um yeah i don't know something just giving somebody hey man i I need to study for a test tonight oh well i got a prescription adderall that's possession that that is distribution of schedule two yes (laughs) and so people have two to ten two felonies yeah Yeah. (laughs) they have this um People have this um, misconception, again, if you're in jail, it's because you're supposed to be there. And if you're a felon, it's because you did some violent, horrible yeah. crime, yeah. not realizing that there are laws on the books that are in place that put people in jail. Again, we were number one when it came to yeah. um, incarceration, incarceration rate per capita that there are laws That's the state on the of Louisiana books. was. That's, yeah. yeah. That's, that's just where we are when it came to the laws to try to... Um, to catch people up, I mean, that, that's another fairly. stat that I wish I wish I had a better memory. The stats of incarcerated persons in the state of Louisiana, as well, we can find those stats as per capita, like in the seventies yeah. to the nineties mm-hmm. to now, it is another insane statistic that'll blow your mind. And you realize yeah. that we were only incarcerating a small percentage of our population in nineteen seventy five, and then in ninety five, and then in 05, and then in fifteen. If you look at it, the numbers jump. It's yeah. cra- and the jump is the percentage jump is crazy, but anyway, I, I keep I keep getting on my criminal defense soapbox. No, no, and I'm sorry no, it's that. all it's all intertwined. We can't it, talk about empowerment when yeah. you have something like voting rights being taken away yeah. because of these these unfair um, these unfair practices, these unjust practices. And so, um, the last thing is just making sure people understand that it's much bigger than voting. You know, that's just sort of the gateway drug to getting into um, not just politics, but civic engagement in general. To, to making people feel like they are part of a larger community. Absolutely. To make people feel like they have a vested interest in seeing a place improve, but even if yeah. it's just a street improve. Yes. Well, but it, it's also like you, you empower them. They, maybe they don't want to do anything with that, right? Right. But maybe they do, and they should have the ability to join the conversation yeah. if they want to. Because 90, not 90, a percentage of those people, I would think it would be higher, you know, are like just happy. They just want to go home right. at the end of the day. Yep. Yeah. They don't want to fight anybody. They don't want to, you know. They want to go home to a safe home. But, and a, right. And but a if clean they do have they an issue. Yeah. They want, like, yeah. uh, I've been all over the world. I've worked with a lot of different people. And the thing that's always the same is, like, people want to be with their family, to have a roof over their head, and to feel relatively safe. Right. Like, and you empower them to know, like, we take for granted things that we can do here in this community and this country that a lot of people just don't even have the right to do. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, if you don't, you know, if you waste your empowerment and you don't do anything with it, Okay, but if you're if if you're yeah, but if you're being held back from that because of you know oh you're yeah you you check out you're you're not a part of the community anymore. It's the same as like to bring up Demetrius again. Like he's he said like hey you know I came home in a cop car and that was it. You know it was like Mm -hmm. I was in trouble Mm -hmm. and then I had to I had to dig myself out of that hole and that meant I had to make sacrifices to get to where I am today. Yeah, not just like you know pretend it didn't happen i had i had to not have things that i wanted for a period of time because of actions that i took 
previous to that. But imagine not even knowing that you have that choice. Yeah, but when, and that's the thing is he's really, you know, he's highly intelligent. Mm-hmm. So he can figure that out. And that was sort of a conversation that we had where I said, like, did you figure this out? Like, you're a smart guy. And he's like, yeah, I mean, I figured it out. But also, like, you just have you have to have the ability to to have to be educated to yes. to, to get education yeah and and he didn't you know he didn't go to harvard right but he went and he got an education that suited what what he yeah he wanted thought. to be an engineer he wanted mm-hmm. to build right. stuff and take and, stuff apart and then yeah. and then he ultimately decided like yeah i don't i don't need to continue formal education mm-hmm. i can go out and just learn yeah. all, like yes. every day mm-hmm. so and that's what we all should be doing is trying to find ways to learn every day. I, I've i had a passion for politics, but a passion for something is not the same as becoming an expert in it or even learning how to talk about it. Um, those things came from training and not even formal training. It's putting yourself out there, learning that you are completely wrong about some stuff, being okay yeah, but that's with okay. being wrong. Being yes. okay, like, yes. hey, you know what? I didn't realize this. I was wrong. Mm-hmm. That doesn't hurt that bad. Right. It's this. Well, law school kind of <laughs> away from me. I got <laughs> so used to being chastised openly, publicly, that by the time you get out, you're just like, whatever. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah my, my perfectionist streak ended after that. <laughs> right. After my first semester grades because came out. you're surrounded I, by perfectionists yeah. and professors that are, at least my experience was, you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. This is how you, this is how I would know what you were talking about if you knew what you were talking about. And it's like, uh, oh my gosh, awesome. I'm so used to being one of the, the yeah smartest the smart kids. Like, that's right. Until no. you go to law school. Until you go yeah. to law school. That's a yeah. really interesting. I have friends that went to med school too that were that are highly intelligent, and they were like, "Man, I was not challenged until I got to mm-hmm. med school, and then I realized, oh no, I'm not the smartest person." Right. And it was very humbling. We have to, a lot of to, people walking around who don't understand. They're no longer the smart kid at the table, and yeah. they 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 sound like they are sometimes. Yeah. They try to come off like they are, but they are they can't be wrong. I, I cannot deal with those types yeah. of people. Um, I want everyone to know that you know you don't start off being an expert at any of this. That it's all it's all a process, and we're all learning. And that the table is long enough for everybody. The tent is large enough for everybody. Yeah, we're going to need a 10. It's hot out there. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me this. Uh-huh. Well, if you could get a message out, if you could send a text message to everybody in Treeport, what would it say? Love your city. Love your city. Mm-hmm. Love your city She's by loving the people. She's been talking to Tim Huck. Okay. Have I? That's based, well, yeah, that's very similar. Together. Yeah, that's very similar to what he said. Yeah. Like, have pride in your city. Yeah. yeah. Um, I want you to go beyond just having pride mm-hmm. in it. I want you to love it. I want you to defend it against people who are quick to say something about... Tanking on um, Shreveport. Yeah. That's what Randolph Smith said. Everybody's <laughs> quick tanking on Shreveport. No, I mean, if we don't if we don't show them that it's something worthy of being loved, then we can't expect other people to, to think so. And so um, that's not just a feel-good thing. You, you learn to love the city by loving the people first. And I think things like you all are doing with having this podcast and having all these different people on so we can hear different perspectives from people in the city, that does nothing but foster community. And so it's, it's and, helpful. And I think I think a, a better sense of our own identity will lead to mm-hmm. more people loving the city. And I mean, because there's some really poor people in New Orleans that love oh, gosh, New yeah. Orleans. Oh, yeah. There's some people in Houston, rich and poor, that love Houston. Mm-hmm. And I think Shreveport's got some of that, and we need more of it. So if um, I love throwing you under the bus with this one. 
Who's my next podcast guest? Your next podcast guest should be, be Sylvester Marshall and Matt Snyder. Boom. Yeah. I'm putting you all did on you, the spot, Did you guys, guys set that up? No, no, no. I, I've, I've reached out to Matt, and then he reached back out to me, and we played phone tag. But I, this was what I wanted to tell him. I was like, uh-huh. hey, man, how'd the event go? Um, and like, I'd love to hear you guys talk about the event and what it means to try to bring two Shreveports together. Yeah. In fact, um, I'll tell him. I was like, hey, by the way, just letting you know, you're going to be on the 3180 podcast. I'll tell both of them. I'm not even going to be here. I'm just going to let them talk. That's that's the plan for some of the guest host stuff is to let people with similar interests and and, uh, and passions get together and talk. So we've got some really cool ones coming up on that. Nice. And I'll, I'll let you know after we go off the air. Is there anything I didn't ask you that you wish I would have? Nope. Is there anything you want to say that you hadn't said yet? Um, election day is October 12th. Okay. And runoffs are November 16th. Please get out and vote. If you need help with registering to vote for anything, or if you want to know more about any of the work that I've talked about, anything that you want to do to get involved and empower your community, feel free to get in touch. How do you get in touch? So I um, am on Facebook. So you can reach out to the Power Coalition page too and get with me. Um, I'm not going to put my phone number on air. No, no, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> uh, or you can email me, CandiceBatist at gmail.com, C-A-N-D-I-C-E-B-A-T-T-I-S-T-E. At gmail.com. Yes, sir. All right. We'll put uh, we'll put all the links that you've mentioned on our three, the3180.com website. We'll mm-hmm. um, think this one's getting, the, this particular thing will be uploaded in two or three weeks nice. and uh okay and we'll share it on facebook and all that good stuff thank you for joining us today thank you all i really enjoyed this conversation it's fun